Hey, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the gospel according to John chapter 18. Uh, We've been walking through John now for the better part of a year, and we've been walking through this section of John for about a month. Really, we've We've been following Jesus's final words as he goes towards the cross, what's called his upper room discourse uh, in that famous event called the Last Supper. Judas has left. He has betrayed Jesus to the authorities. He's told them where Jesus is so that they can come and arrest Jesus. And as Judas leaves, Jesus begins to speak to the disciples who are faithful to him. And he says, here's what's about to happen. Here's what you should expect, not just in the next few hours, but in the next few days weeks, months, and years. And he begins to prepare them for what is to come. And then the time arrives. When, when I was in high school, I went on like four, maybe five mission trips with our high school ministry through a, a company called LeaderTrex. And LeaderTrex is, is a great company that does incredible work, but the requirements for a LeaderTrex trip, there's a lot of preparation. Like there are a lot of meetings. And as a high schooler, I'm reflecting back on it. And maybe in my mind, it it was more meetings than it actually was, but it felt like like 50 meetings to get ready for this one trip. And there was team building exercise and there was weekend retreats and there was Bible studies and there was, was all of these different things that we had to do. And there was preparation after preparation after preparation. And it all ended with us in the airport waiting to get on the plane knowing that all of our preparation had come to this moment. And I was a nervous high schooler. And so I could feel like the electricity in my fingertips. Like, oh my gosh, I've spent all this time getting ready. I've spent what feels like years getting ready for this trip and here it comes. And then I would sit on the plane, I'd be nervous the entire plane flight. Like my, my stomach would be churning with anxiety because I've spent all this time getting ready and here's what I've been waiting for. And I wonder if that's not what's happening to the disciples. Last week in our passage, Jesus began to pray for the disciples. He he begins to pray for what is to come for them. He begins to get them ready for what's about to happen. And in our passage tonight in John chapter 18, verse one, we're told that when Jesus had spoken these words, that is to say, when Jesus was done praying for the disciples, he went out with them across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so after everything that's happened in the upper room, Jesus says, we're leaving now. And he takes them to this garden that we know from the other gospels is called Gethsemane. What we know from this gospel is that it was a place that the disciples had been to before. It was a place that they weren't unfamiliar with. It's interesting though, that Jesus knows what's about to happen And he chooses to make sure that it happens there. He chooses to make sure that this is the place where he ends up being betrayed. He could have stayed in the upper room, right? Judas knew where he was. He could have said, let's let's let it happen here around the table. But he says, no, I want it to happen in this garden. Follow me. There's this interesting phenomena that happens with places. When good or bad things happen in a particular place, those places are haunted by the people who remember what happened there. I had a friend uh, a couple years ago who was in a relationship for a while and it had started to go south. He and the girl that he was dating both realized that this wasn't gonna last much longer and they needed to just meet up, meet up and break it off. And so there was the sort of inevitable 
where do we want this terrible conversation to happen? And one of the suggestions was, hey, you know, we always go to this coffee shop. Why don't we just meet up there? It's a public place. We can, ha- we can wrap things up and call it a day. And his response was, I don't want my favorite coffee shop to be ruined by the memory of the fact that we broke up there. Because in allowing this event to happen in this place, that place becomes haunted, at least for a season. On the other side of things, there, there are positive hauntings, if you will. I don't know, we're getting to October and my mind is turning towards horror movies. There, there's positive things that can happen in a place and it sort of, it becomes a, a reminder of good things. So when Mickey and I got engaged, we rented out this garden center. She didn't know this, but I rented out this building next to the apartment where we were gonna be living once we got married. And I said, wouldn't it be great if every time we walked past this, past this place, we could say, hey, that's where we got engaged. Right? There's something positive that happened here and we wanna remember it. The reality is that places have memories like the people who linger there. When something really tremendous happens in a location, it develops a strange glow for the people who have witnessed it. And in the same way, when something really awful happens, those who know the history can't help but feel the shadow that it casts. It's the reason why you can go to Gettysburg here in America and remember something terrible happened here. It's the reason why you can go to the ruins of the World Trade Center and there's this weight to that moment. Something awful happened in this place. Jesus' disciples are well-versed in Scripture. They They may not be smart men, but they've read their Bibles. And when they walk into any garden, no doubt they have this sense in the back of their mind, something awful happened here. Because they know what Genesis 3 says. They know that it was in a garden in the beginning that humanity betrayed their king. They know that it was in a garden where the world was lost to sin and death and decay. It's in a garden where everything first went wrong. And Jesus says, I want to be betrayed here. As if to say the world was lost in a garden and here and now as I begin to make things right, I want to take the world back starting in a garden. So he takes the disciples to this garden and Judas knows it well. We can only speculate. I'm sure that Judas took them first to the upper room and he was like, I guess he's not here, but I know where he goes. Let's go to this garden. And so he leads the guards. We're told in verse three that Judas had procured a band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They went there with lanterns and torches torches and weapons. That's fascinating to me. Like, I don't know, again, October's approaching, so scary movies are on my mind. I don't know if you've seen the original Frankenstein where he ends up in a windmill and there's all the townspeople with the torches and the pitchforks trying to get him to come out. But in my mind, that's what this night looks like. You have this crowd of soldiers, this crowd of guards that Judas has convinced to come with him. And they show up with torches and lanterns and pitchforks. And that's just kind of a, that's an unbelievable thought in my mind. Why did they think that all those things would be necessary? Why did they feel like they needed to bring all of this to take Jesus into custody? I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's something that Judas said. Maybe he pointed out that a couple of days ago, Jesus had chased people out of the temple. And he was like, you don't want him chasing you out of this garden. Or maybe Jesus was just like really buff from being a carpenter for his whole life. He was like, I don't know if you can take him. You may want to bring a sword with you. 
Or, or maybe Judas pointed out that Peter is pretty unhinged. And Jesus won't be a problem, but Peter might be a problem for you. You should bring some swords with you. And yet, notice what happens. The, the soldiers show up along with Judas. And in verse four, we're told that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. It's this picture, you can almost see this chasm of Jesus and the 11 standing on one side and Judas and those who would persecute Jesus standing on the other. I'm sure at this point, there's all sorts of tension building. I'm sure Peter's muttering things under his breath. But notice who's in control, even here. Who has the torches? Who has the swords? It's the people who've come to arrest Jesus. Who's doing all the talking and who's asking all the questions? Jesus. Even in his betrayal, Jesus is never out of control of what's happening to him. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds to them, I am he. And in verse six, we're told that when Jesus said this to them, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Frederick Bruner, who's a New Testament scholar, translates this, they lurched backwards and collapsed. This is something that you might, you might pass over. Most people miss it when they read the, the gospel accounts. John's the only one who mentions it. When Jesus states his name, all of the people, swords, torches, and all collapse at the sound of it. It's as if the identity of Jesus is so powerful that no weapon brought against him is of any power. No opposition is strong enough to withstand the power of Jesus's name. If you grew up in a charismatic church, it might be worth noting, this is the only place where being slain in the spirits even remotely mentioned. However, I don't say that because I'm gonna start knocking people over <laughs> in our services. I mention that because what we see here in Jesus's betrayal are actually two approaches to conflict. Jesus is approached by the crowd and with his name, he lays them flat. But if you go a few verses later in verse 10, we're told that Peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest servant and cut off his right ear. There's two approaches to the crowd when Jesus is betrayed. There's Jesus's approach and there's Peter's approach. Peter is passionate and he's stupid and that's a terrible combination. Jesus speaks he confronts the crowd by his speech and lays them out. Peter draws his sword and starts hacking at people like it's mortal combat. Peter matches sword against sword and Jesus tells him that he's made a mistake. And what you see here is a picture of Peter using the weapons of the world against the world. And Jesus tells him, this is not how that's supposed to go. This is not how my people live. They don't use the swords of the world against the sword. They live differently. You know, in teaching church history and foundations over the last couple of weeks, I am struck by how many times Christians have forgotten what Jesus said here. Like if you go through church history, we are constantly taking out our swords and cutting off ears, metaphorically and literally. It's, it's pretty ugly. But the reality is, we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing that Peter does. 
Like when people are unkind to us, we are unkind right back. When somebody cuts us off in traffic, we either cut them off or we tailgate them or we honk at them. Maybe honking isn't wrong, but you honk more forcibly than you ought. <laughs> and, and can I just say, I'm, I am fully, fully guilty of this. So like a couple months ago, we had a guy named Gary Chapman here to speak at our church. He's a widely recognized author. He wrote this book called The Five Love Languages. It's really helpful for uh, couples who are looking to figure out how to interact with one another better. But he has this lesser known book called The Five Apology Languages. How best do you hear somebody saying they're sorry? So I took this test because I was interested to know what my apology language was. And uh, I don't actually remember what it was. Um, but I'll tell you that as I was just thinking about apologies in general, I realized like the sinful part of Travis, his, his apology language is revenge. So like when you've wronged me, I want a pound of flesh and then I'll know you're sorry. Like I want to know how much this tears you up. It's, it's the, the world against the world. It's the sword against the sword. It's living like the culture in opposition to the culture. We are all guilty of this. We are all Peter in the garden, taking our sword out, dealing with our problems, fighting the world with the world. That is Peter's way of dealing with life. It is not Jesus's. Now, Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. Put your sword away. Contrary to Peter, Jesus confronts a persecution, injustice, evil. He confronts it with the power of his name, the force of who he is. He confronts it not with the world's weapons. And notice the difference. Peter's sword takes off an ear. Jesus's name knocks down the whole legion. There's a radical difference between these two approaches. I wonder if that's not a pattern for us. Like when we face conflict, when people have wronged us, when we're disappointed, when, when we're in pain, when the temptation is to lash out, the question is, do we follow the pattern of Jesus or do we follow the path of Peter? In the 1940s, during World War II, there was a Presbyterian minister named Ernst Gordon was taken captive by the Japanese and he was placed in a work camp along the river Kwai. And in his book, The Miracle at Kwai, he recounts his experiences there and everything by all accounts, his life in this camp was about as close to hell as you can imagine. In this camp, disease and starvation and torture, they were all commonplace. And it got so bad that people in, in the camp started turning on each other. Prisoners started turning on prisoners. They started stealing food from one another. They started betraying each other. And he describes it like this in his book. He says, as the conditions steadily worsened, starvation, exhaustion, and disease took an ever-growing toll. The atmosphere in which we lived was increasingly poisoned by selfishness, hatred, and fear. We were slipping rapidly down the scale of degradation. We live by the rule of the jungle, survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everybody else. I have been wronged and in turn, I will wrong. The sword has been drawn against me, so I'm taking out my sword. That was until a single event happened that turned the entire tide and the culture of that camp. It was the end of the workday and they were tasked with basically cutting through the jungle for a railroad. 
And as a result, they'd been given tools to accomplish this task. And at the end of the day, the guard that was assigned to them started counting the shovels and said, one of you stolen a shovel. There's a shovel that's missing. That's a really bad thing for people who are prisoners because shovels can be used as weapons or as a means of escape. And so the guard got increasingly frustrated. He said, who took the shovel? And nobody spoke. And in broken English, he starts swinging the machine gun back and forth at everybody. And he says, all of you will die. I will kill all of you unless somebody admits it. Until one of the only Christians in the camp stepped forward and said, I took the shovel. And then the guard beat him to death in front of everybody else. And then the guard recounted and there were no shovels missing. It was a mistake. But this one man stepped forward and in this act of Christ-likeness, he refused to draw his sword. He refused to fight the world with the world. He chose to live in the power of Jesus's name. And in this singular action of him putting the sword down and living out the gospel with power, the entire camp started to change. Things began to radically shift in this community. Ernst, the author of the book, started to be more forthright about his beliefs as a Christian. Men who were in this camp who were philosophers and college professors said, hey, I can, I can teach philosophy. I can, I can teach theology. So they founded something in this camp that they called Jungle University, where they taught the Bible and theology to other prisoners and to their captors who were interested in hearing it. They started taking the, the branches of the trees in the jungle around them and making musical instruments. And they started an orchestra in the middle of the camp so that they could perform classical works, things of beauty in the midst of all of this ugliness. And in the end, when allied forces finally liberated this location, they lined up their captors and they publicly forgave them in Jesus's name. And in doing that, they put their swords in their sheaths. They did what Peter couldn't do. He said, we will not fight the world with the world, but we will lean on the power of Jesus's name. I am he. And with that, they drew back and fell to the ground. Maybe Jesus is saying something like that to you. If you're in the business of repaying evil for evil, if you're in the business of harboring bitterness or gossiping about people or seeking revenge, if you like me have an apology language of a pound of flesh, if you're the sort of person who draws sword against sword, maybe Jesus is saying, put your sword down. It's not how we fight. But notice what Jesus says to the guards after he gets back on his feet. He asks them the same question. Whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you I am he. And they probably said, yeah, but you knocked us over. I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. That's fascinating to me because Jesus is still the one making the demands. Even here, Jesus is entirely in control. Who are you after? You, okay, well, you're not touching any of the people behind me. I go in their place. If you're after me, let them go. Even here, before he gets to the cross, Jesus is offering himself as a substitute for his people. 
saying, take me instead. Let the judgment that is meant for them fall on me. This is exactly what he's getting at in his final words to Peter. It's why we read all these passages about wrath and cups in worship. He says this to Peter after he's put a sword away, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Now in the Old Testament, as I hope you heard, uh, there's all these passages about the cup of God's wrath. Cups are not a good thing in the Old Testament. They're full of bad stuff, like God's judgments and his anger and his wrath against his enemies. But Jesus says, the cup is for me. The cup of God's wrath is for me. It's as if here in the garden, the father gives the cup of wrath, not to his enemies, but to his beloved son, our substitute. And he says, take and drink. Jesus stands in our place in the garden. That's why Paul calls him the second Adam in Romans. There's something of a picture of this in communion. Because when we take and drink, we are reminded of the fact that Christ's body was given for us. Christ's blood was poured out for us. He stood in our place. And that's what we do now as a ministry. We move into this time of communion. We do it every week. And so if you're a Christian, if you're walking in repentance, if you believe the gospel, not if you've lived perfectly because nobody does that, but if you're walking as best you can, in a way that honors the Lord. We invite you to take and eat, take and drink. Um, Our ushers are gonna come forward with the elements. I'd invite you to just take some time, pray, make sure you're right with the Lord and with one another, and then come and grab these, uh, these two symbols of Christ standing in our place. And then I'll come up and lead us in communion together, but the next few minutes are yours, and then we'll move into that time.